Now, we're going to uh, lift our Bibles and go to the book of Exodus. So, boys and girls, you're maybe uh, sitting near to a Bible. You should be able to find this really easily. It's the second book in the Bible. Uh, and between now and Christmas, we're going to be in Exodus. And Exodus is a massive book. It's a big book in the Old Testament. How, how can we think about Exodus? Well, here's a little helpful way for us as a church family to think about what's going on as we, as we try to keep our bearings as we go through Exodus. It's simply this. God hears. God speaks. God rescues. God speaks again. God speaks again again. God comes down. Okay? So, six ways to remember the book of Exodus. God hears. God speaks. God rescues. God speaks again. God speaks again again. God comes down. Okay? So, that'll maybe help us as we make our way through uh, Exodus over the next couple of months. So this morning, if we've got our pew Bibles or you've got your own Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 1. That's on page 58, and we're going to read this first chapter together this morning. This is God's Word to us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly, and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, They will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sapphira and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summons the midwives and asks them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. And I said Simon, and it was Simeon on the way through. <laughs> My apologies. Well, as our boys and girls make their way out, if you can turn with me to Exodus, and to Exodus chapter 1. And uh, it'll be no surprise then each week as we make our way through this series that you can be reading ahead as you, as you think, where are we going this morning? I wonder what uh, passage uh, Nigel or John or Stephen or whoever it is will be preaching on uh, in Hill Street this morning. You'll know that it's just the next uh, part of Exodus. So please do read along with us over the weeks ahead, and let's take time and study Exodus. Now, this morning we're going to be in Exodus 1 and into Exodus 2 as we think about this opening two chapters. So, what is Exodus? Exodus is God's picture book for salvation. That's a really helpful way for us to think about the book of Exodus. It shows us God's plan of salvation. We have it here in picture form, what will happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. God's rescuing of His people in Exodus is a foreshadowing of what will come in Jesus. So, let's think about it. A people in slavery and in chains in Egypt, they're under the heavy hand of a tyrant slave master, and then they're brought to freedom from the, uh, and by the shedding of blood. As they pass through the waters, they're brought into the promised land, meeting with God and God with them. And see how it's the picture book for what will happen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will come to His people who are under the heavy hand of a tyrant master in chains and bound in slavery, and He will bring them into freedom, bring us into freedom by the shedding of His blood, and we'll pass through the waters of baptism, and we'll be brought into the promise of an inheritance of a new life and a new earth. God coming down to be with His people, to meet with His people. So, Exodus is the picture book for us of all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's by way of introduction, so let's get stuck into Exodus 1 and into Exodus 2. And here's the question for us this morning. Has Christianity, has Christianity a future in Northern Ireland? Now, if we were to ask uh, people in our town that question, I think there would be lots of different answers. Has Christianity a future in Northern Ireland? And for us here as believers, do we feel like our days are numbered? Do we feel like God has used up all of His power, that His energy source, it has is, it is run low? Do we think of Him perhaps like an old man whose better days are behind Him? Is Christianity dead in Northern Ireland? Here's what Frederick Nietzsche said, and it'll come up on the screen for us. He was a thinker uh, uh, many years ago, and he was writing, and he, he talked and said this, whether is God? Where, where is God? This person cries, and Nietzsche says, I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are murderers. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. 
So, does Christianity have a future? Was Nietzsche right? God is dead. He remains dead. We have killed him. We are the ones who sit upon the throne now. We are the ones who are in control. Well, let's look at the first six verses of Exodus chapter 1, because as we read the first six verses of Exodus chapter 1, it seems like God is dead. It seems like His people are being snuffed out. The promises from Genesis that He will send a rescuer that will come through this seed line, well, it seems like it's all over. Look at verse 2. We have listed uh, Jacob's family, all of the the tribes and the descendants. But look at verse 6. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Has God forgotten His promises? Has God forgotten that that He was going to rescue us and bless us? He was going to send someone from this seed line that that would save us? Has God turned away from us, His people? Well, we're going to see three things today. And the first is very simply this. As we look at Exodus, what does it teach us about God? Sometimes we get distracted with Moses in it all. What does it teach us about God? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is that God honors His promises. God honors His promises. You know what it's like whenever someone promises you, uh, they're maybe going off to town, and they say, I I promise I'll I'll bring you back an ice cream. (laughs) Ice cream was a great highlight in my childhood, and someone (laughs) would have maybe said, I'll bring you back an ice cream. And with all that happens in town, they arrive home, and the shopping bags come in, and one by one, the pieces are taken out, and there's no ice cream. And you think, what's happened? A promise that has been broken to me. And you wait, and you think, oh, they're just hiding it in the car. It'll come out in a few minutes. And you wait, and 10 minutes go by, and 15 minutes, and you think, it's going to be very runny by the time this ice cream appears. And it, and it doesn't appear. Broken promises. What does God do? Does God break His promises? Well, absolutely not. You see, in the Hebrew translation of Exodus, or the the original writing of Exodus, the first word of this book is and. Now, our English translation starts with these are the names. In the Hebrew, it reads, and these are the names. What does that tell us? Why is that and important? It's important because it points us straight back into Genesis and says that this is a continuation of what we have heard about in Genesis. And so, as we arrive into Exodus, we have these interesting uh, details about the tribes, about the 12 sons of Jacob. And then we're told that there's 70 of them, verse 5. And then we're told that they're all dead. But, verse 7 comes, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. What should that chime in our minds? That should chime a a distant bell, a a bell that's really helpful for us all to remember. If you're going to think about any chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12 is one that you need to have in your mind. And in Genesis chapter 12, what happened? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God met with Abraham, and He made him a promise. Here's what He said. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, 
and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made a promise to Abraham. He promised him that he would be fruitful and that he would multiply and that his family would be great. But then further on in Genesis chapter 15, we have this very situation laid out for us. The children of Israel in Egypt, under the hand, the heavy hand of Pharaoh, the Lord told Abraham about this in Genesis chapter 15 and in verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, that means foreigners, in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord had made a promise He had told them that they would find themselves in this very situation for 400 years. And then again, so that's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and then again in Genesis 22, the Lord spoke again and He said this, I shall surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Why in a series that we start today in Exodus are we going back to Genesis? Well, we can't understand what happens in Exodus unless we understand what is going on in Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22. They are the the frame, as it were, for the picture of Exodus. They're the foundation stones for everything that's going to happen in Exodus. And so, now we can see the drama of verses 6 and 7. Is the seed line finished? Will the promises fall? Absolutely not. Verse 7, the people multiplied. God upholding His covenantal promises, God preserving His people, God setting a pattern for salvation that we'll see over the next number of weeks. And so too, we this morning have promises as Christian people. We have promises that will sustain us and will uphold us. The the children of Israel, they were holding on here for 400 years. They were holding on year after year. Will God remember? Will God remember? Will God remember? And so, for us, as we face these questions, are the days of Christianity numbered? Is Christianity dead? Absolutely not. Is God finished with us? Absolutely not. Has God forgotten about us here in Hill Street, in Northern Ireland? Absolutely not. Has God's power run out? Absolutely not. You can follow Jesus, we can follow Jesus today with utter confidence that this is the truth. That what He says will happen, happens. Tim Chester, who has a little book, Exodus for You, that you might find helpful as we make our way through this series, Tim says this, the confidence in the purposes of God 
enables us to be courageous in obeying God. Confidence in His promises means that we can have courage in our obedience. Confidence in His promises, courage in our obedience. And that means that you can follow Jesus today when you might be the only person in your workplace. You might be the only person in the whole of the the area that you work, and you can do so, and you can do it without being afraid because of Exodus 1 and 2, and because God keeps His promises. And you know that one day His Son will return, and He will judge the living and the dead, and then He will take us to be with Him forever, and He'll recreate this whole earth. You know that that's going to happen. And so whenever times get tough in work, you can endure that. You can have courage in the face of that exactly because of what we read in Exodus. God is the God who honors His promises. And you can run the Christian race. You can keep the faith even when friends laugh, and we know what that feels like. Even when family mock, Maybe whenever a spouse turns against you or a child of yours insults you for following Jesus, you can do it. Because the God of Exodus, because the God of Exodus 1 and 2 is a God who hears His people, who keeps His promises, and who is at work even in the midst of opposition. That's our our second point for us. God hinders the plans of evil. He hinders the plans of evil. Do we see what, what happens as we, uh, as we get past verse 7? You see verse 8, a new king comes. The new pharaoh arrives, and so quickly he forgets Joseph. This man who had steered Egypt through really difficult times, a man who was honored the prime minister over the whole land, a new king arrives. It's a, it's a new administration, and he, he, doesn't know, he doesn't know about Joseph. And his Eyes, look at verse 9, they turn towards the children of Israel, and this Pharaoh is bent on the destruction of God's people. He's bent on the destruction of them. But God is bent on the preservation of His people. And so, this Pharaoh comes up with three plans. You see them as he he unfolds them for us. There's three strategies. How are we going to get rid of the children of Israel? How are we going to deal with them? Strategy one, look at verse 9 through 14. We'll put them into labor camps. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, of recent history? Let's work them. Let's ethnically cleanse our society of God's people. Let's deal with them shrewdly, lest they should rise up. And so they put them to work, and they start to build these cities for them. But look at what happens in verse 12, this running refrain through Exodus 1. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. You can just imagine the Egyptians' eyes. The more they worked the children of Israel, the more there seemed to be babies everywhere. These people just keep growing and multiplying and expanding out. So he comes up with another strategy, strategy, chapter, or strategy 2 in verses 15 through 20. This time they, they say to the midwives, you've got to murder the children, the baby boys. You've got to kill them all. It's a simple policy. Every male that's born, you kill them. 
but God frustrates their plans again, just like he did with the labor camps. He frustrates their plan. Look at verse 17. The Pharaoh may have forgotten Joseph and forgotten his God, but in verse 17, the midwives feared God, and they did not submit to the earthly throne. They, they submitted to the higher throne, and they honored God, and they did not kill the little boys. And so again, verse 20, the refrain, the people multiplied and they grew stronger. So strategy three, verse 22, this time all the citizens, not just the midwives, but every loyal citizen of Egypt is to look for little baby boys and is to kill them. And so you can imagine the blood that was shed upon the streets of Egypt as loyal citizens, as loyal followers of the Pharaoh, went out and sought for little baby boys to put them to death. And what we see is, is this, this vicious head of evil rising up against God's people. And that's what we have through Genesis and through Exodus. There's this battle that's going on. It's a battle between the two seed lines, the, the seed line of the serpent, as it were, of evil from Genesis, and then the promised seed line, God's seed line. And what we have is this battle throughout Genesis where the, the seed of, of the serpent of Satan is trying to overthrow and overwhelm the seed of, of the woman of God's chosen people. And so here again in Exodus, this great battle where, where Pharaoh, the, the seed of the serpent, is, is trying to quench, trying to kill God's people. But what do we see? God hinders the plans of evil as this, as this evil oozes out of Pharaoh. God hinders it. Once the people had a Christian, a follower of the one true and living God upon their throne of the prime minister's seat, and within a generation, within a generation, the people had gone to slaughtering God's people. But we see the irony, don't we? As, as Pharaoh tries his best to, to squish the people, to, to push them under his foot, they just keep springing up. And as he tries to kill them, what happens? Well, the Lord actually takes this little boy, and we're into chapter 2, this little boy Moses, and he hides him, and he brings him, and saves him. You see, see the twist of events Look at, look at how the Lord in the details of Exodus chapter 2 is all over it. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. That's not a coincidence. That day, she thought, I'll go and have a bath. And I'll go and have a bath about this time. And I'll go and have a bath in this exact location. And as she does, she meets or, or is encountered with this, this little basket that's, that's caught amongst the reeds, the exact reeds catching it that she was able to see from the place that she went to bathe. And then as she comes over to this little basket and as she opens it, look at verse 6, what does God do as such? God says to the little, the little baby boy Moses, cry. And the little boy cries, and as she opened it, Look, he is crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then at that exact time, Moses' sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. That's, again, that's no coincidence. God's sovereign over it. 
shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby? Yes, go and get them. And so she goes and gets Moses' mother and brings her. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, take him, verse 9, and nurse him for me. And not just that, but I will pay you to be his mother. And so Moses' mother raises him, and then he's brought into the household of Pharaoh. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to be Pharaoh's daughter, and, they became, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. You see how Pharaoh's trying to crush the people, and God is sovereign over it all. He's working His plan of salvation. He's, he's preparing Moses to be the leader of His people. And he takes him and he brings him into the very household of his enemy with his enemy's money. And he gets him an education, an education like no other that would prepare him for all that was to come. He would learn how to read and he would learn how to write. He would learn mathematics and geometry. And he would learn about architecture and construction. And all the time this happens under Pharaoh's very roof. And he's trying to kill the very people that he happens to be educating. God hinders the plans of evil. God is at work out of the weeds into his mother's arms and into the palace of Pharaoh. God's salvation will not be stopped. God's promises will not be broken. And God's people will not be destroyed. You see, evil it tries to derail God's promises, but that will not be able or allowed to happen, and neither will a sinful man. Look at how it goes on then into chapter 2. The first half of chapter 2, it's, it's evil that's been trying to, to quench the seed, but then there's a, a sinfulness within Moses. He's age 40 at this point, and what happens, if you're not familiar with the story, he, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew in verse 11, and then Moses takes it upon himself to strike down this Egyptian, kills him, murders him. And you can imagine that Moses has been brought up by his mother. He knows all the stories of his people, how they've been oppressed. He's watched them being beaten and worked. And so now the, the fleshly Moses tries to rescue God's people. And there's a big learning point here for us. The fleshly Pharaoh couldn't destroy God's people. And, and the fleshly Moses, he, he cannot deliver God's people. You see, it's all about God's work in God's time. Flesh cannot destroy. Flesh cannot deliver. It's God's work, and it is Him alone. And so, in verses 11 through 15, Moses would have to learn that it is not by His will. It's not by the lifting up of His arms, as we'll find again, but it's the Lord's work. So, evil will not derail God's promises, neither will sinfulness or selfishness. And then, finally, God hears His people. God hears His people. Look at chapter 2, how it ends. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22. And with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's easy for us to lose heart. It's easy for us as Christian people to lose heart in a, in a country that really the hostility levels haven't, haven't risen too high yet. But yet we, we look around the country and what do we see? We, we see meeting houses that were once full and had great galleries built into them, empty. We see less and less people coming to church. We see less and less young people following the Lord Jesus, and it's, it's easy for us to lose heart. It's easy for us to shrug our shoulders this morning and think, what's the point of this anymore? What's the point of following Jesus? Sure, it would be just easier for us to go along with society. Instead of throwing our time and our energy and our, our lives into serving the Lord, well, I'll, I'll just I'll throw it into whatever hobby it is that I have. And as the hostility levels will continue to rise over the next number of years, what's going to happen is that we're going to think to ourselves, I don't want to stand out. I don't want our children to be different. I don't want to be fired. I've went to university. I've worked 10, 20, 15 years in this job. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to go to jail. Well, what do we want? I tell you what I want for all of us here today. I want us to stand on the concrete promises of God, and that means standing on the truth, because look at verse 23 of chapter 2. In those days, the king of Egypt died. Gone. His threefold strategy plan to get rid of the children of Israel, gone. Back to dust, he returns. But our God is still alive, isn't he? God, what has happened? God hears the people's cry. He remembers his covenant. He looks and he's concerned. So what side of history do you all want to be on? Do we want to be on God's side of history whenever he returns? Or do we want to capitulate and fold and be with the world? Our God hears. He hears His people. There's a story that I came across this week, and it was told about, and it's a true story, about a meeting in the BBC a number of years ago. And it was a board meeting, and on the agenda was this question for the, the BBC. How can we as the BBC give Christianity a decent burial in this generation? How can we as the BBC give Christianity a decent burial? Very good of them to think about that, wasn't it? Well, in that meeting was a man called John Reith. And, and he stood to his feet, and it's told that he, he pointed his finger, and he said this, let me tell you this. The church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. And more immediately, she will stand at each of your graves. 
the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. Jesus Christ is our King, and He is our Lord. And He promised us in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16 that He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Our God keeping His promises from Exodus all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate display of God keeping His promises, sending in the rescuer, the promised one of the seed line right from Genesis all the way through, who would come and by the shedding of His blood would rescue His people. Is Christianity dead? Absolutely not. Will it die? No way. God heard his people's cry, verse 23, and he remembered, and he saw, and he knew. See all the words to describe the, the personal relationship of our God to his people. He loved them with an unending, steadfast, covenantal love that could not be broken. And so he displays it through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His love on display in His Son upon the cross and then at the empty tomb. And so, Christian, take heart today. God hears the cries of His people. He hears the cries of His people in nations like Nigeria where the blood of the saints stains the ground. But be sure of this, His church will thrive. What will happen? God will multiply. Verse 7, He will make the church be fruitful, and it will multiply, and it will become exceedingly numerous. Isn't that what the saints in China used to say? You can cut us down, but we're just like the bamboo. If you cut us down, the more we will grow. God's people, God's church growing on the move. And in this land, it seems like it's going the other way, where once a, a prime minister sat, a Christian prime minister sat upon the throne of power in this country. Could it be that in a generation that Christians in this country, in our country, could be slaughtered? Well, know this, brother and sister. God hears. God knows and our God is able. He keeps His promises to us. He withholds the hand of evil and works out His salvation plan, and He hears His people. So, no matter what happens in Northern Ireland, if Christianity, it seems like Christianity's days are numbered, and if Hill Street is the, is the last church left in Northern Ireland, and they come for us, no matter what they do with our bodies, we will have the victory in Jesus Christ, won't we? And if they want to put us in the jail, what's our cry going to be? Then fill the jails and build more of them, because as Christian people, we're going to go. And if they want to put us to death, then so be it, because Jesus came to set us free from the greatest bondage, bondage from sin and from death and from Satan. And so we are. God hears His people. God hinders the plans of evil. God honors His promises. And God is working salvation for His people. Christian, take heart.
in Exodus 1 and 2. Don't shrink back, but have confidence in God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Don't doubt our God. He is at work even in our suffering. And do not be deceived. God is not dead, but He hears His people. He comes to His people, and He knows His people. Amen.